it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll A get through it. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got an interesting one. We're going to be kind of uh, all over the map today, coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Everything you wanted to know about colds and flu, thanks to a uh, new book by Dr. Uh, Neil Schachter from the Mount Sinai Medical School. He has written a book called The Good Doctor's Guide to Colds and Flu, and we're going to talk about that and their relationship to uh, COVID-19 in the uh, middle hour. We're uh, going to talk with uh, Ian Rosenberg, who is the legal counsel for ABC News and author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech. Um, should be uh, should be interesting but first up and it seems sort of timely in an ironic way um with uh, Tom Brady announcing he's uh, going to be well the news that Tom Brady is headed to the Super Bowl for the 10th time we're going to talk with a couple whose son had a uh, tragic mishap on the football field it is the subject of a new book by Pat and Tammy McLeod, who joined me by phone. Pat, Tammy, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks Good morning. Good morning. Um, now, if you could, um, because I'm not sure exactly the, the timeline, but can you explain essentially what happened to your son, Zach? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this was 11 years ago. We were at a large meeting, and... Uh, Someone came up to me, gave me, gave me my phone, uh, told me that my son uh, was had been trying to call us while we were in this meeting. When I answered the phone, this was my uh, middle son, Nate, who was panicked, said, uh, hey, Dad, Zach's been hurt. Um, he's collapsed on the 
football field. Uh, there's coaches that have been calling, and, and parents are calling. Now the hospital's calling and uh, told me that, that they were airlifting him to the Boston Medical Center to undergo emergency brain surgery. So that was, uh, so we got in the car, raced to the hospital. The doctor told us that he had suffered a, uh, a uh, what they call a subdural hematoma, um, which required that he open up his skull cap and remove a lot of blood and cauterized some vessels. And he said this could result in anything from death to full recovery. And Zach basically recovered, but he, he survived the surgery. Uh, but a good portion of his brain did not. And, um, yeah, so that's how it all began. And, and how does that not, that part of his brain not recovering manifest itself? in the change in his uh, abilities and behavior. So he has very little short-term memory and very little speech. He wears a right brace on his calf and foot. Um, he has to have a gait belt when he walks. So someone has to hold on to him with that gait belt every single step. And so he is in a group home living. He has 24-7 care. So someone sits by his bed all night long and then walks into the bathroom if he has to go. And um, He has other physical problems, like his right hand doesn't work very well. So everything on his right side is injured. But... He's the happiest, most joyful guy I've ever known. So it's great that he's left in a state that he loves people. He knows who we are, so he has all his long-term memory. Um, and he doesn't seem to be suffering. No, not at no. all. No. <laughs> it sounds he like any, anything but. <laughs> yeah. It's part of what make it, makes it really tricky with Zach is that he uh, he doesn't feel at all bad for himself, um, and even though he you know his life has been so radically altered, he'll never marry. He'll you know he'll never be able to have his own kids, and he can barely talk. He's, it's very hard to understand him, uh, but he brings life to anyone that he comes in contact with. He just it's just uh like i said it's sort of a tricky he's he's there but he's not there the way he used to be i i imagine it was a very tough um decision to put him in 24/7 care um how how did that come about and and how were you able to come to terms with it how, what went into your decisions to say there's we we can't do this at home so he was in the icu for four months or four weeks and then spalding rehab for four months and at the end of the time we were hoping to bring him home but the people at the rehab hospital says said to us we think that he is so severely injured that his best chance is a, a better recovery 
or if he goes to a brain rehab school that's residential, so he's living there full time. So he actually went to that school, the May Center, for five years. And so he transitioned. He never came back to our home full time after the injury. They just said the best thing for his recovery would be to go there. And then after that school for five years where he regained something, they said, you can't take him home. You don't have the capacity to be able to do that because he will be 24-7. Someone has to be with him every hour of the day. And so basically it was taken out of our hands. So we brought him home on the weekends when he went to the school. So we had him overnight. And I can let Pat tell you well, that part, but it definitely yeah, was it, hard on us. The, the, the real deciding factor, I think, on that came when uh, so this is when he was still in the school and we had him home on the weekend and uh he had he had an accident he actually fell over the the uh the the what do you call it i don't know the staircase we have a spiral staircase and he fell at 12 feet oh and, wow uh, over the rail ended up over the rail on the same exact injury Ooh. and uh, so he was he was he's not really safe to you have to stay up someone has to stay up all night with him because he can still ambulate but he's not steady and he doesn't make good decisions and um so we live in a house with 20 people and everyone in the house except this one person knew that zach is not supposed to walk up a spiral staircase and if if he does um this didn't have handrails, so if he does, someone would have to go up behind him and hold his back going up. And the person who answered the door when he was dropped off by the transportation that was given to him by yeah. the school district thought that when the person answered the door, it was us. So they thought they were handing him to the parent of the child, but they weren't. And that person just watched him walk up the spiral staircase and he fell over at the top. So we didn't know any of this was going on until my husband heard the loud thud. Well, that had to be terrifying again. Yeah, so we went through the whole brain injury thing again. Um, it was a shorter recovery process the second time. With... um. Were you able to find a, uh, a a facility that was close enough that you could visit him frequently? And, and how frequent were you able to visit him? Yeah, it's much closer than the school was. He was, he was almost an hour away during the, the school days. Um, but he's he lives now in Boston. We live in Cambridge. And so he's he's about 20 minutes drive from our house. We see him often uh, between the appointments and him coming home on weekends during the day. Um, we we get to see him a lot, but since COVID hit, uh, that uh, that too has changed. He's been quarantined, um, so they've had uh, COVID in their house three times. Yeah, he's never got. Well, that's so, good. Um, yeah, and and I, I want to ask you. Um, 
just out of curiosity, because I was, I was reading something about the two of you, said you serve as Harvard chaplains for crew. What, what is a Harvard chaplain? <laughs> sure. Um, so let, let me just say, a chaplain in general is a person who's, you know, ministering spiritually to people who've been displaced. So you have military chaplains, you have hospital chaplains, in our case, we're university chaplains. So um, we are kind of like, say, pastors or priests that are, except uh, we're, we work interdenominally. We work with an interdenominational Christian organization. And so, uh, yeah, we're like campus ministers. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but what's crew? <laughs> <laughs> So crew is an interdenominational, international Christian ministry that uh, initially started just on college campuses. That was its, you know, the scope of its origin. But now it has ministries in other branches of society. But who people who function like we do to, you know, serve people who are in this place somehow from their normal. Lifestyle. When I it's, it's in 160 countries, so now it's international, also. Well, when I first read that, I, I despite the fact that it was spelled differently, I, I <laughs> couldn't help wondering how the rowing team at Harvard gets its own chaplains. <laughs> well, it's interesting. We work a lot with athletes. That's most of our work. And we have two Bible studies on the rowing team, the lightweight men's and the heavyweight men's. And also, I'm a rower. <laughs> so <laughs> I row out of the women's boathouse, but it has nothing to do with rowing. Yeah, two crew, crew teams. <laughs> so I wasn't quite as far off as, as, as I might have been. <laughs> Um, I, I want to talk about uh, about the book and and why you decided to write the book, and what kind of research went into the book aside from your own experiences. But I have a break coming up in about a minute. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes and and sure. we can talk some more? Yeah. Absolutely. That'll be great. My guests are uh, Pat and Tammy McLeod, Harvard chaplains, and the authors of a book called Hit Hard, the true story of their journey through ambiguous loss, both having and not having their son. And we'll, we'll talk about football injuries and uh, um, all of that with uh, Pat and uh, Tammy McLeod when we return. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and then we will return with uh, with the McLeods and more conversation about their book, Hit Hard. So, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com.
TheTomSumnerProgram.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with uh, Harvard chaplains and uh, turned authors, really, with a new book called Hit Hard, the true story of their journey through ambiguous loss after their uh, son, Zach, um, collapsed on a high school football field with a serious brain injury. Pat and Tammy McLeod joined me by phone. Pat, Tammy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No, great to be here. Um, I mentioned before we went to break that I, I wanted to talk about the book and, and what kind of research went into the book and, and how your experience with Zach has maybe changed the counsel you give as chaplains to uh, members of the of the sporting uh, of the sport various sports departments at at Harvard. Um, but let's start first with what made you decide to write the book. Yeah, I'm gonna let Tammy start with that. I might comment. <laughs> Go ahead. I was reading a lot of books on grief and they weren't helping and I asked friends and colleagues do you have any referrals to books or articles for me with my type of loss because Zach didn't die he was still alive but he wasn't the same and nobody had any recommendations so I called Spalding Rehab where Zach spent four months and I asked the librarian do you know what the term is for our kind of loss I want to do a research paper on it in graduate school. And he wrote back the next day with the term ambiguous loss. He said, this is the type of loss that you're dealing with. And then he has links to books and articles by Pauline Boss. And when I got her books, I started reading, and I just couldn't believe that someone understood what I was going through. And she defines ambiguous loss and talks about how to be resilient in it. So it was actually, for me, that process of learning about ambiguous loss and just wanting to help others understand what it is and why she calls it the most stressful type of loss. Yeah, if, if I can add something to that, Tom. Yeah, I would, please. I would add that um, So the, the trick and, and challenge to dealing with ambiguous loss is learning to live well with both having and not having at the same time, which is really difficult. People typically do one or the other, but not both. Sometimes they don't do either very well. Um, it's even more complicated when one person is is doing better with the you know acknowledging the real loss, but but uh, not really bonding with the person who's still there. And the other person is completely obsessing over the person who's still there, but living in denial about the loss. And that really was our story. And I think it's a story that is out there a lot with people who are struggling with and dealing with. Pat, uh, are you real, are, are you talking but, about the two of you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that ended up being, so that was not, 
I wanted to write a book more about meeting God in the midst of pain and suffering. Uh, but the publisher and our agent saw a book about a kind of loss that's ubiquitous, even more so now with the pandemic, uh, that people have, but they don't have a name for it, and nor do they know how to increase their resilience in the midst of it. So, so they, uh, that, so there were kind of two different purposes going on in the writing of this book, but it came together and we're happy with it. And when you talk about, you know, one understanding the reality of it and, and one obsessing about it, um, are, are which which one is which? And is, is, <laughs> and is there, legitimately, is there a gender component to that? I actually think there probably is yeah. because I'm the mom. So <laughs> I was definitely the one grieving. It took me a while because I kept hoping that Zach would have a full recovery. After all, the surgeon said death, the full recovery or anything in between. So I was hoping for the full recovery. So I didn't really give up that hope for a year and a half or so. I, I pushed a little bit too long. It's something that you can do in ambiguous loss. You cannot look at what's in front of you and try to hope that it'll be different but um at the about the one and a half year mark i just realized he's he's not going to have full recovery and so i was grieving all the time i was flat on my face bawling in my bedroom from the earliest days but when i finally realized he's not going to have a full recovery um i really started to engage the grieving process more and so I definitely had more tears and took on the loss and it I still your bond with the person is never broken so I still have that attachment but as boss talks about you have to revise the attachment so I had to start figuring out what to do like Zach and I used to play worship songs together so we would play our guitars and sing and now he can only use his left hand so because he has his long-term memory he's he has all the chords in his mind so he can play the chords but his right hand doesn't work so I lean over the guitar and I'm strumming with my right hand he's playing the chords with his left and I'm singing but he comes in once in a while with a word so things like that, we had to revise how we did things. And, and uh, Pat, I don't want to leave. I, I don't want to leave you out um, looking <laughs> looking like my dad, who was uh, a, a strong proponent of his his reaction to everything was walk it off. <laughs> exactly. You're reading my mind. Tom. Yeah. So I, there's a little bit of a gender thing, it maybe, but there's also a football factor here like I I was raised in a family where not only was I never really taught how to grieve but I was taught not to grieve you know my dad who was a football coach was like like you said walk it off show no visible sign of weakness be tough you know um and so yeah, that was kind of my reaction to this is that we were set up for the ultimate comeback story and you stay focused on the positive and you, um, 
and you know it's still that way zach is still very life-giving to me and um but the actual process of writing the book um and then a, a ceremony that we did um really ended up unleashing some some grief in me that was absolutely necessary otherwise i think you know it was I was headed for a deep depression or something like that, which is often does happen for people who you know, who deny the the pain and the and the sadness inside of them. Now unfortunately there are a lot of parents, especially of high school athletes and, and football in particular, because it's it's such a uh high octane uh, uh com uh contact sport. Um, that head injury is is getting a lot more attention in recent years. When you were putting together this book, what kinds of, of things did you uncover about measures being taken to try and prevent the kind of injuries that Zach suffered? Yeah, we did a lot of reading after Zach's injury. Uh, I did a lot of reading after Zach's injury. Um, he was injured right before the class action lawsuit with the NFL um, broke, and they started to show that most of the brains that were being mailed to the brain bank in Boston had CTE, the NFL players. And so I did a lot of reading, and in our book, we have a fight about football. <laughs> I think it's actually a snapshot of the conversation in the country because some people want the game to end because of the damage that happens to guys' brains, and others don't. They love the game. <laughs> so uh, Pat still watches football. I don't. But one day he was watching football with Zach. Zach still loves to watch it. And I was sitting in my room, and I was just flooding Pat's inbox with article after article about how bad <laughs> football is for the brain. Um, but it, it and it it must be difficult. And and Pat, for you, um, growing up around football, with your dad being a football coach, and um, and and I mentioned, you know, there are these these heroes like Tom Brady who's going to the Super Bowl for the 10th time and there are all these athletes who have careers and don't suffer those kinds of injuries um is it should we err on the side of caution uh you know my brother is one of them he he played several years professionally and I think he still got it together um I mean this would be a as much idea. as he ever did right Pat <laughs> I mean he, he without a doubt Mike is is great and fine and and so as you say are a lot of people who play the game but but um there is mounting evidence that it's not it's not the stuff that happened to Zach although that occasionally happens but the, the sub-concussive events that happen every time someone is smashing their head uh, against someone, you know, and uh, that, that, that can take a toll. And so I, I, you know, I think the moves that the, they've made to make it safer and the, I would support even the movement that 
has been initiated by some people to stop uh, tackle football until what is it, until the age of 14. I think that's a smart move that, according to the science, makes sense to me. I mean, speaking like I don't think Tom Brady played until he was 13 or 14. Um, so you know, there you go. He's he's a legend. Some say he's the best that's ever played the game, and um, and football really is that kind of a game. I don't think you have to. Uh, I think you can acquire the skills that go with the game um, at that you know age and beyond, rather than feeling like you have to. Where where in other sports, you know, like maybe a golf or basketball or baseball, you you do want to start playing as uh, early as you possibly can, or hockey. Well, if you want to follow the example of Tiger Woods, <laughs> yeah. What what was he about three or four when he was first exactly. on television swinging a club? Um, yeah. But um, what about the the equipment? Um, there's a lot uh, that's been discussed and and uh, talked about in the news about the development of equipment that maybe is more protective. Is there equipment that's protective enough to allow people to play the game and keep them safe? I just finished a book about the history of youth football and the origins of the public health crisis. And it's interesting over time watching the different views of football. But from what we have read, the helmet, for example, which people put a lot of focus on, really protects the skull, not the brain. So it doesn't really matter how protective the helmet becomes because it can't protect the brain because the brain gets thrown up against the other side when it gets hit. Um, so there are some things that have helped, like teeth are now protected and people are not losing their teeth, but the brain is not the same. It will always be thrown up against the other side of the skull when it's hit. Yeah, I, that you should tell them the name of that book. Uh, no Game for Boys to Play. Yeah, I think I think that I think again our country's divided on that question of um can it can it ever be made safe enough that it's reasonable to keep playing it and uh, I think I my view is that I I think that the moves they're making are the are the right moves and they should try to make it safer but uh, I understand the argument more now than ever that yeah this may just be a game that you can never make safe enough to really support it it has so many other great assets to it, though. Like, there's, I, I really do think, if I can add this, this is my argument, Tom, of why I, I have a hard time letting go of it, not just personally, but for the fabric of our culture, is that there, I just feel like America is so radically individualistic, and to have a game that can bring together such a diverse blend of body types and abilities and, you know, cause them to work together and and then it not only builds the sort of team experience of of playing the game but but the community experience of support that comes around uh football teams not just you know local high school teams but but you know professional teams and college teams that's really an important thing you know and um so and my side 
is more, um, I, I, I feel I'm like I'm hosting watching. a debate, Tammy. <laughs> it's not just um, it's not just the damage even to the guys themselves. Mm. So that is very troubling to me because even people who don't have as severe as injury as Zach, which is life altering. Um, a lot of them, because of the head injuries, end up getting depression, and um, mm. many of them kill themselves or their lives are very, very tough because they're dealing with lifelong depression. So it's just the players themselves, but also it's the families. So when I went to see the movie Concussion, when we walked out, I just thought, you know, I feel bad for the NFL players who were killed in that movie, but I felt even worse for the families because you could see the destruction in the families, what the wives had to deal with, what the kids had to deal with. So now I see what moms and and dads and brothers and sisters and friends have to deal with. It's not just the players themselves. And, you know, of course... Um Head injuries aren't the only injuries that occur in football. Um, You know, there are garages all over America that aren't being cleaned out because of somebody's old football injury to their knee or something. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Um, But on on a more more serious note and a more personal note, um, what... How did how did you manage to find any kind of joy with this situation that seems to be now permanently part of your lives? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Do you want me to? Um, you know, I think. Our son, Zach, and, and this is, again, a part of the storyline of the book, is um, the, the, the uh, maybe two months before his injury, we were on an international mission trip where we do, it's a service learning project in South Africa. We're, we're working with, um, this summer was, I think, the only summer that we actually worked with disabled kids in a home um that also had an aids hospital and this was at the at the peak of the aids pandemic in sub-saharan africa and so we were there doing work and research and stuff and um these kids and we had we had both harvard and stanford students many of them varsity athletes some of them who just been touched out from qualifying for the olympic games that year they were just extraordinarily gifted uh, intellectual and physical human beings. And um, they took us to this home for children with disabilities the first day that we got there. We, this was a little bit of a surprise to us. It just so happened we were living on the premises with the, the disabled children's home. And so when we walked in that room and we saw the disfigured bodies and and heard the moans and and noises that were coming out of the kids it was so upsetting and unsettling even the smell in the air that was lingering over over the 
place was nauseating. And and uh, when that, when we left there and we were told, you know, we would each spend a week working in that home, I was so repulsed that I could I just sat outside with some students who couldn't even go in with us to eat because they just sat outside and cried because they had never seen that before. Um, fast forward about three weeks later, and Zach was at the heart of this. Um, for every single person that was on that trip, the highlight of the summer was spending time in that, the week that they spent with the um, with the kids with disabilities, including especially Zach. Um, they had a they bonded with these kids, and once they sort of got over the initial shock they just began to connect with them and just there were just it's it's hard to find an explanation for it but um uh when we got back home zach told me we were we were having breakfast together and this was like now a week before his injury um he said to me <laughs> and we were met, we were impersonating some of the kids that we had gotten to know the best that we were missing and and that we just you know who made us so happy and uh, their little quirky habits and stuff like that. We were, we were just enjoying that moment. And Zach all of a sudden said to me, said, dad, you know, this may sound weird, but I just wonder if I'll ever become like one of them. And uh, it was a weird comment and I took it serious. I didn't joke about it. I said, you know, Zach, if anything happened to you and you did, we would love you the same way we love those kids, you know that, right? And he said, yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, that was just a week before. So I, I guess the, the point of the story, and this is, by the way, one of several stories we tell in the book that that bring across for us the idea that these small stories of tragedy in our life, they beg for a bigger story of redemption that can make sense of them and can give us hope in the midst of them. And this is why for us, this journey into the world of ambiguous loss was, for me, it was the, the, the moments that I've met God, not the moments where I, I questioned God, but where I felt like I experienced uh, a story of redemption that I've found in, in my Christian faith that has carried me through. Well, I, I it's... Um it's a heart-wrenching story but but fascinating all the same and it's nice of you to spend this time telling it and we're just about out of time but i always give guests an opportunity to let them know where they can find out more obviously your new book hit hard is a great place to uh to start but do you have a website or or with with possibly links to some resources for people to do maybe not the exhaustive reading that tammy's done but they can learn more yeah so our <clears throat> website is patenttammymcleod.com and on the website there's a tab called ambiguous loss and there's an article that i put on there and i gave it to the harvard chaplains it has the definition of ambiguous loss, what it is, why it's the most stressful type of loss, and the six things that you can do to be resilient in it. So you'll find that on the site. Zach's whole story is on the site, so you can read about that. Also on the site are COVID conversations. We did three days a week, wrote with a Stanford chaplain and the two of us, 
responses to dealing with ambiguous loss during COVID. Mm. And so that'll be particularly helpful right now. And then Pauline Boss's two books are also on the site. Well, we've then, got we've got to end it there. I'm sorry, but uh, yep. thank you both, Pat and Tammy McLeod. Hi, thanks, this is Joe Bud from the Blue Lions, and you're listening <laughs> to the Tom Sumner Program. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery 
is Pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Tom Sumner, Program.com. Tom Sumner, Program.com. First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. It was back last October, I believe it was. We are going to hold a tent service off at this college town, and we got there about dinner time on Saturday. And uh, different ones of us thought that we ought to get us a mouthful to eat before that we set up the tent. And so we got off of the truck and followed this little bunch of people through this small little bitty patch of woods there. And we come up on a big sign. It says, get something to eat here. And uh, I went up and got me two hot dogs and a big orange drink. And before that I could take every mouthful of that food, this whole raft of people come up around me and got me to where I couldn't eat nothing, up like, and I dropped my big orange drink. I did. Well, friends, they commenced to move, and they want so much that I could do but move with them. Well, we commenced to go through all kinds of doors and gates, and I don't know what all, and I looked up over one of them, and it says, North Gate. And we kept on going through there, and pretty soon we come up on a young boy. And he says, ticket, please. And I says, friend, I don't have a ticket. I don't even know where it is that I'm going. (laughs) I did. Well, he says, come out as quick as you can. And I says, I'll do her. I'll turn right around the first chance I get. (laughs) Well, we kept on moving through there, and pretty soon everybody got where it was that they was a-going because they parted and I could see pretty good. I I could. And what I seen was this whole raft of people a-setting on these two banks and a-looking at one another across this pretty little green cow pasture. Well, there was. And somebody had tuck and drawed white lines all over it and drove posties in it and I don't know what all. And I looked down there and I seen five or six convicts running up and down and blowing whistles. They was. And then I looked down there and I seen these pretty girls wearing these little bitty short dresses and dancing around. And so I sat down and thought I'd see what it was that was gonna happen. I did. And about the time I got set down good, I looked down there and I seen 30 or 40 men come running out of one end of a great big outhouse down there. <laughs> they did. And everybody where I was a setting got up and hollered. And about that time, 30 or 40 come running out of the other end of that outhouse and the other bank full, they got up and hollered. And I asked this fellow that was besetting beside of me, I says, friend, what is it that they're hollering for? Well, he whopped me on the back and he says, buddy, have a drink. (laughs) Well, I says, I believe I will have another big orange. (laughs) And I got it and sat back down. 
And when I got down there again, I seen that them men had got in two little bitty bunches down there. <laughs> they had rail close together, and they voted. <laughs> they did. They voted and elected one man apiece. And them two men come out in the middle of that cow pasture and shook hands like they hadn't seen one another in a long time. And then a convict come over to where they was a standing and he took out a quarter and they come in to odd man right there. <laughs> they did. Well, after a while, I seen what it was that there's odd man in for. It was that both bunches full of them men wanted this funny-looking little pumpkin to play with. <laughs> they did, and I know, friends, that they couldn't eat it because they kicked it the whole evening and it never busted. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, what I was telling was that both bunches full wanted that thing, and one bunch got it, and it made the other bunch just as mad as they could be. And friends, I seen that evening the awfulest fight that I have ever seen in my life. I did. They would run at one another and kick one another and throw one another down and stomp on one another and grind their feet in one another and I don't know what all. And just as fast as one of them would get hurt, they'd tote him off and run another on. <laughs> Well, they'd done that as long as I sat there. But pretty soon, this boy that had said, ticket please, he come up to me and he says, friends, you're gonna have to leave because it is that you don't have a ticket. And I says, well, all right. And I got up and left. And I don't know, friends, to this day, what it was that there's a doing down there, but I have studied about it. And I think that it's some kindly of a contest where they see which bunch full of them men can take that pumpkin and run from one end of that cow pasture to the other without either getting knocked down or stepping in something. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Tell you something 
TheTomSumnerProgram.com You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! 